I am impressed with Steve Finney's earlier work that was clinically based. I think he's got some good ideas, but there are parts of this that, uh, particularly the scurvy situation, that I'm a little bit skeptical about. Anything else like that? I'm just curious, because you're one of the few experts in the world on Paleolithic diets. Steve Finney's focusing in on a particular kind. I'm very familiar with pemmican. Stefanson, I mean, I've got all the pemmican stuff forever. Stefanson tried to get a grant in World War II to the U.S. Army to feed the troops pemmican. I'm familiar with the way in which pemmican was made by the Plains Indians, the, the furred marrow and so forth. And I, I'm not saying that pemmican's not a healthy food. I think it probably is an expedient way to provide calories over the course of a North American winter. It's a very great way to store these things. An all-pemmican diet, I don't think, is a healthful diet for a number of reasons. One is if you only eat pemmican, I, I think you'll become osteoporotic. I think if you only eat pemmican, you won't get any vitamin A. I think if you eat only pemmican, uh, you will promote atherosclerosis. So I just bring to you uh, one paper that I would like you to distribute. And that paper is published in an obscure journal, the Texas Heart Institute Journal, 1993, so nobody's read it because you can't get it on Medline. What this guy did, he was a physician, an MD, PhD by the name of Zimmerman. Zimmerman was a pathologist, and he was lucky enough to be in Alaska when a 400 AD, so we're talking 1,600-year-old frozen Inuit mummy was recovered. He did the autopsy on this, and he sectioned the coronary arteries. So this is 400 AD. These people had never seen white people. They had only eaten, quote-unquote, what Steve Finney had suggested people eat was fat and protein and significant atherosclerosis in a 53-year-old Inuit woman on pathology. So that wasn't just the only case. He uh, then was privy to another group of frozen Eskimo bodies that were recovered in Barrow, Alaska, and these people date to about 1520 A.D., so just slightly after the time Columbus had discovered America. Once again, no influence of any Western civilization. And so presumably they're living at Barrow. What is that, 60 degrees north? They're eating basically meat and fat their entire life. They might get a little bit of berries and, and such in the, the wintertime extensive atherosclerosis in the older woman who was 30, all three of them were osteoporotic, severely osteoporotic on that type of a diet. So you can give this to people that claim that all we need to eat is meat and fat, and then I'll take this one step further, and here's another obscure paper because we are no longer allowed to perform these experiments in primates in which we feed them atherosclerotic diets and try to induce an MI. That means a heart attack, an yeah. MI. And so in 10 rhesus monkeys and in two signalist monkeys, they actually were able to induce myocardial infarctions and electrocardiographic abnormalities, unexpected and relative sudden death in these non-human primates are also consistent with signs frequently observed in humans. This is an obscure paper that absolutely needs to be addressed by the unlimited saturated fat type groups. Let's see what the response of people like Steve Finney and Eric Westman and Jeff Bullock would be. They have a new book out, the Atkins Diet Book. There's some difference of opinion between the three. 
they're all top-notch scientists. I respect, I respect all of these people. I respect all the scientists. I'm on record in the scientific record of stating that saturated fats are not unidimensionally responsible for cardiovascular disease. They represent a risk factor. And the risk factor of saturated fats can be small. In the context of a paleo diet, I don't believe that high steric acid levels, which is 18-0, is atherogenic. I don't believe that high 12-0 or 14-0 is atherogenic because they occur in such small concentrations. Palmitic acid is atherogenic. And there is not an experiment in humans or animals or tissue to show that it doesn't downregulate the LDL receptor. This is a point that is never addressed in either Gary Taub's book or in Eric Westman's articles or so forth. Or Ron Krauss. Or Ron Krauss, is that you need to address the downregulation of the LDL receptor. And that controls the flux of oxidized LDL in and out of the intima. So on a molecular basis, you can't deny this information. Now, how relevant is that information under the umbrella of a high-carbohydrate diet? A high-carbohydrate diet in combined with a high-saturated fat diet is even worse. And that's something that it seems like all of you researchers tend to agree on. Steve Finney did mention that he thinks there are islands of safety in many ways of eating. Yes, I would agree. you would agree with that? Yes, I think that you can eat, you can tend to eat a high-saturated fat diet, a high animal food diet. You're going to be at risk for osteoporosis, vitamin A deficiency, and some of these other factors if you don't include some plants in your diet. Now, if you eat liver, the vitamin A is a non-issue. But if you only eat muscle meat and fat, then it's not going to work. If you ate organ meats like traditional people did, you're if at you less risk. Tra- if, you eat, if you eat organ meats like traditional people consume, then you're going to be in pretty good shape. The osteoporosis does not clear out, and you can see that by these papers here. It's neat for people to have good information, and it's interesting to hear good experts debate. If we believe the results of this pathology, that we have atherosclerosis in people who never consume carbohydrate, who always consumed a high-fat, high-protein diet, then the question comes up, did they ever suffer a fatal MI? And my belief is they probably didn't. Oh, so even though they had hardening of the arteries, plaque build up in their arteries, they might not have had the inflammatory conditions that caused heart attacks. There you go. In that way, you might agree with Steve Finney on the fact that... I've I've always stated that. And see, I've been misquoted so often on this saturated fat issue and atherosclerosis. The devil's in the detail. So I believe these Inuit women that had never been exposed to any Western foods or carbohydrate did indeed have atherosclerosis. They had a lot of plaque in their arteries, but did that mean they had heart attacks? No. What kills you is not plaque in your arteries. What kills you is the rupture of the plaque, okay? What causes the rupture of the plaque, because I think what happens is atherosclerosis goes forth, we wall it over and wall it out, and the lumen of the artery actually expands to compensate for the thickness in the intima. What kills us in the Western world is we have this atherosclerotic process going on, like what we have in these Inuit, but in contrast to them, we have a pro-inflammatory diet. If you were to take these 1,600-year-old Inuit women and feed them bread along with their high-fat diet, I would be almost certain that you would see myocardial infarctions. And in fact, 
Inuit women who during the transition time between their native foods and Western eating were eating that kind of diet and all of a sudden they had obesity, they had heart disease, they had diabetes. That's right. And we are actually exploring this and you can mention this to Eric because once again I respect him and Steve Finney and, and all those folks. We believe that wheat upregulates an enzyme called metalloproteinases. It upregulates metalloproteinase 2 and metalloproteinase 9. And if you look at the final dissolution of that fibrous plaque, what causes that fibrous plaque to rupture is it's made out of collagen and smooth muscle and cholesterol. And what causes it to rupture are metalloproteinases. Metalloproteinases upregulate and degrade the collagen. And when the collagen breaks and the fibrous cap breaks, that is the event that kills you. And so we think that elements in the Western diet, including wheat and corn and grains and legumes and high glycemic load carbohydrates, upregulate the enzymes that directly cause the rupture of the fibrous cap. So that spaghetti meal could be the thing that triggers the heart attack. Right. But to unequivocally say that saturated fats do not cause atherosclerosis is sheer folly. We know that they do. We awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine to Brown and Goldstein for showing that palmitic acid downregulates the LDL receptor. And unless we're going to take that Nobel Prize back, you cannot deny that information. And so I would like to hear a response of how in the world LDL receptors are not downregulated by palmitic acid. Well, let's see if we can get a response from Steve Finney on that, because I believe he is an expert on saturated fats, and he might have a response, and I don't know what it would be. One other thing these scientists said was that a person should not mix and match diets, even if there are islands of safety between different ways to eat, and they have health potential and possibility that's demonstrated in that style of eating. If one day somebody eats the fruit and vegetable diet of the Hawaiians, And then the next day they eat the pemmican diet of the Plains Indians. That may be a very bad idea. What do you think? You know, we don't have any good randomized controlled trials with those kind of ideas. We only have four randomized controlled trials of a paleo diet right now. And so these are all very, very recent. And when you start mixing and matching and talking about a Hawaiian diet and an Inuit diet and this diet and that diet is like, the data always have to speak for itself, and long after I'm gone, I think that good scientists will always try to let the data speak for itself and try not to get involved in charismatic individuals who are guys that can raise their voice the loudest. I don't think that's a good thing to do. What we need to do is follow good science where we conduct experiments that are reproducible in other laboratories, and those experiments then point towards either uh, corroborating a hypothesis or showing that the original hypothesis is incorrect. One of the hypotheses that's guiding that opinion about don't mix and match diets is what it takes metabolically at the cellular level for the cells to be adapted to either burning fat or burning sugar and switch between the two. I think you're right. You know, we look at glycation end products and and factors like that. It's an upregulation of... A hormone such as insulin and cells becoming more or less sensitive. I don't know that you're going to find a huge argument about the glycemic index and insulin resistance and high glycemic load carbohydrates. I think there's a few stragglers that are hanging on to the low-fat 
high-carb diet. But Such as the American Diabetes Association, the American School Nutrition Program, a few stragglers like that. Well, that's unfortunate, and those things will change because data will speak for itself outside of charismatic or loud voices, and unfortunately, those people are politically well-positioned. But, you know, we're getting the soft drinks out of the school environment. We realize that trans fats are not good for us. We realize that soda pop is not something that should be consumed. Junk food, potato chips, and so forth are not healthy foods. That kind of collective wisdom, I think, will be for the next generation. The people that are being taught right now that are in their 20s, it won't become an issue because they have to read these papers. These papers are what we teach in the university right now. We also teach these papers as well. So the students are taught to critically think, and they need to be given both sides of the argument. It's very easy to get caught up by looking at all of the arguments in favor of your own ideas. Good scientists don't do that. Good scientists crucially and critically evaluates both sides of the argument. And good scientists also change their belief system when the data shows otherwise. Thank you for being an astute critic. <laughs> you know, I talked to, with a couple of your students. They said that your ideas are really intriguing, but could it really work as a way to feed people? Oh, I never said it was a way to feed people. <laughs> you can't f- feed six billion people, on, and it's ironic. We can no longer eat the diet to which we're genetically adapted. Having said that, In the United States, upper-middle-class people who are middle-aged, these are the ones that are suffering most from these chronic diseases of what I call malnutrition. And these people can afford to eat whatever they want. That is the crucial caveat for the world's population. Unfortunately, we have walked down a path of total reliance on cereal grains that we can't reverse. So, uh, yeah, you can't feed the world's population without cereal grains or legumes or any of these plant foods. But we can reduce their damaging effect and how we provide them, how processed they are, what they're served with. I don't know that we can. I mean, wheat is pervasive. Wheat is consumed in every country, every place in the world. And recent evidence now suggests that wheat, as I mentioned, goes through and causes this leaky gut which upregulates the inflammatory response. So every person on the planet who regularly eats wheat probably has some point in their life, particularly as they age, chronic low-level inflammation. Yet another puzzle to figure out how to feed the planet. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, genetically we can probably make wheat without gliadin, I guess, (laughs) but there's other anti-nutrients. Then the problem is, is then these predators, the insects that feed on all these crop plants, if you take all of these anti-nutrients out, then the insects have a feast and they destroy the crops. Well, One puzzle after the other, one problem after the other. Yeah. Thank you. I know that you need to get on to a class, so thank you.